Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Welcome to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Unless you've been living under a rock the size of Alderaan for the past 41 years, you're at least familiar with this Star Wars saga. Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, the Death Star, the rest also deeply woven into our cultural fabric. While Star Wars has been a box office tour de force for over four decades, it may have more to offer than pure entertainment. Joining us on The Crisis Next Door is Max Brooks and Major Matt Kavanaugh, co-editors and contributors to Strategy Strikes Back, how Star Wars explains modern military conflict. Max Brooks is the author of World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war and the zombie survival guide, also a fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Major Matt Kavanaugh is also a fellow at the Modern War Institute. He's got experience in 11 countries with assignments ranging from the Pentagon to Strategy Command and Iraq. Max and Matt, thank you very much for joining me today. And uh, well, we'll start with Max. How did this idea come about? Obviously, Star Wars, very popular story. How did you tie Star Wars into military strategy? Uh, well, this idea uh, came from Matt. Uh, we had met at the Modern War Institute, and he explained to me how difficult it was trying to teach uh, military strategy. Uh, and so he said, what if I taught it through the lens of pop culture. Uh, I thought that was a great idea. And initially he brought up Star Wars, but he uh, said, what if we did Star Wars and uh, a bunch of other genres? And I thought, you know, let's, let's keep it narrow to Star Wars. But his idea to use pop culture as a universal language, I thought was genius. So I, I said, just uh, sign me up. I'm in. And Matt, I mean, the, the typical works when we're talking about classic military strategy, Sun Tzu, The Art of War, Clausewitz, On War. Admittedly, I've got those books on my bookshelf. I've attempted to read them. They're not easy. Is that what you find with your students? It's just this stuff is too dense and you need something that's more relatable? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, when, when when you're of a different generation like I was while I was teaching at West Point, I'm older than those cadets. And I'm somewhat dissimilar from, say, the Korean officers that I served with when I was in Korea or civilians. And the one war we all know something about is Star Wars. Whether you're a cadet, a colonel, or a Korean, we know that war. It crosses languages, cultures, generations. And it's even bigger than that. uh, Civilians understand it, too. And so it really was just a vehicle for um, reaching a much wider uh, group of folks and, and, and using it as a way to teach um, things to make folks uh, more aware of what's going on in the real world of war. 
You obviously got a lot of reception to it. Uh, 30 different contributors to this book. Uh, Stanley McChrystal with a Ford. A lot of top thinkers. Uh, is Star Wars a very popular topic when it comes to people currently and formerly in the military? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it, it's funny you, you mentioned General McChrystal because um, he's obviously much older than I am. Um, but when I approached him to contribute the foreword to the book, the first thing he said was, you know, I, he could remember sitting in the theater seeing the very first Star Wars film on screen. Um, he was a second lieutenant. He had just finished Ranger School. And for him to share a common experience with me, because obviously I've seen the films, um, you know, that, that's really powerful. And so for a lot of our contributors, you know, it wasn't just military officers. Um, there's diplomats, um, intelligence professionals. We, we had foreign military officers contribute. Uh, and, a general in the Australian Army contributed. But also uh, fiction writers like Max and August Cole, who co-wrote Ghost, Ghost Fleet. You know, um, we, we really feel like there's a, a lot of passion out there uh, for Star Wars. And... There's something for everybody in this book. It's it's maybe not for everybody, but anyone could benefit from reading this book. The different chapters focus on different facets of the Star Wars saga. Max, you contributed with a case for planet building on Endor. Of course, Endor is the home of the Ewoks, those cuddly little allies of the Rebellion. Uh, you, you look at this in a very fascinating way and compare the Ewoks to experiences that the U.S. has seen in, in countries such as Afghanistan or perhaps Iraq. Uh, how can we relate to the Ewoks and Endor with what we've done here in this world? Well, it's, for me, it was, it's very personal because my country has been involved in Afghanistan since 9-11. It's the longest war we've ever fought, and it's not going away anytime soon. And if I were to write you an essay on how we sowed the seeds of this in the 90s, how we drove the Soviets out, uh, but we didn't rebuild Afghanistan afterwards, we left it in chaos, we left it with uh, Soviet weapons there, uh, you know, maybe half a dozen geopolitical scholars would sit up and take notice, but everybody else would be bored out of their mind. So how do you relate the notion of nation building? Well, you talk about Endor, another, I would say, third world ally that we used in a larger war. Uh, what if we abandoned them? You know, that, that moment after we had the big party and everyone was dancing and beating on stormtrooper helmets and uh, singing Nub Nub. What, what about the day after Nub Nub? Uh, what if we just left them? Uh, what if we left them with nothing but chaos and mountains of discarded imperial weapons? We, we might very well have a Taliban crisis on our hands. So that was the language of which I was trying to explain Afghanistan. Matt, you contributed a chapter on Yoda. Uh, interesting title. The strategist Yoda was not. Uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, Yoda is seen by so many as this this great leader of the Jedi. Where did he fail, and what parallels could we draw from that? So, it, that's the thing. Yoda is amazing, right? He's gymnastic, and he's a flurry of lightsaber and green, uh, a flash, really, when he's actually in combat. He's brilliant. Um, but that is tactically. That's not as a strategist. And 
um, when you when you look back at the prequel, the episode, the first three episodes that George Lucas went back to uh, to do after the original episodes four, five, and six, um, you can see in the very first episode the Republic rules the galaxy, and the Jedi are um, policing that rule. And by the end of the third film, episode three, The Revenge of the Sith, uh, the Republic has fallen, and the Jedi are two heartbeats away from extinction. And Yoda was in such a leadership role that you can actually evaluate his actions as a strategist over the course of those three films. And my argument in the, in the essay is that he fared very poorly. Um, there's the, the nice thing about these sorts of essays is that they can, um, yes, we're talking about a film, but it forces you to scrutinize and evaluate uh, what it means to be a strategist. Um, so in, in my mind, uh, and based off the, the work in my experience and the, the literature that, that I've read, um, a strategist should be expected to do three things, anticipate, um, sort of see ahead um, a sense of foresight uh, to design uh, responses, create intellectual order from physical chaos, and then facilitate um, security decisions, important important judgments. And on all three of those steps on that ladder, he failed, but, but of the three, he failed hardest at his ability to anticipate future events. And essentially, he kept the Jedi so... Um, so firm on and rigid that they would only grow their numbers through uh, through the blood. You know this this very extensive, difficult uh, training model. They they had they were so few in numbers that they really couldn't fight wars. And when a war came to find them, they weren't prepared. And so that's really what you know the 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 cardinal the, the bloodiest cardinal sin that I think we can hang on Yoda. As a strategist, again, I'm not uh, hating on Yoda. I love Yoda, but um, to me, this tells us that the strategist's first priority is to look to the future, to see over the horizon, and recognize the requirements to come, and to build the resources so you never have surprise that turns into regret. Good idea, not hating on Yoda. You don't want to get a lot of hate mail. No, I, I've gotten some, <laughs> but not. I, I I want to be very clear. I like Yoda. He's a nice guy, just not a great strategist. <laughs> You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. I'm talking with Max Brooks and Major Matt Cavanaugh, co-editors and contributors to Strategy Strikes Back, how Star Wars explains modern military conflict. I want to touch on a couple of other chapters in the book, too. Uh, one of them involving the other leader of the uh, Galactic Empire, at least for a while, Darth Vader, uh, one of the ultimate bad guys in cinema history. Uh, we tend to think of his uh, effectiveness in being so bad uh, but a couple of looks at Darth Vader in this book are very critical of how he handles command and how he gets involved in the minutiae of various campaigns. Uh, Max, what are your thoughts on Darth Vader and how he possibly fails and what conclusions we can draw from that in modern society? Well, you look at the example of the asteroid field, of leading the entire fleet into an asteroid field and causing, uh, causing so much destruction. Uh, simply because he had he had an emotional goal in mind, wanting the Millennium Falcon, and you know that actually happened 
in the largest naval battle in world history, in Leyte Gulf, where Admiral Halsey went chasing after uh, obsolete Japanese carriers who didn't even have airplanes, and he completely abandoned the landing zone and left the rest of the Japanese fleet to steam in and came pretty close to wiping them out. Uh, and it was that goal of taking your eye off the mission and focusing on a narrow emotional goal, uh, which can be disastrous. Uh, you can see that the way that uh, Hitler went charging after certain targets in the Soviet Union instead of going straight for Moscow in the summer. And had he done that, he would have taken Moscow. Uh, it, it happens time and time again. And, but if you try to describe that to the average citizen, uh, I call it printed ambient. You'll put them right to sleep. So you talk about Vader leading the entire fleet into an asteroid field and probably doing more damage to his own fleet than the rebel fleet ever could. And they automatically get the voice of James Earl Jones in their head when you mention Darth Vader. I mean, that's incredibly effective right there. Another chapter on lightsabers and Death Star's military technology lessons from Star Wars. This from retired Lieutenant Colonel Dan Ward. Uh, points out that lightsabers always defeat the Sith advanced weapons. Uh, Matt, Lieutenant Colonel Ward says, keep it simple, that complexity is a recipe for failure. Uh, we seem to have very complex weapon systems now. Is this a problem when we're trying to fight wars in countries like Afghanistan? It sure can be. You know, um, I think that that chapter is brilliant in its, um, in its core message, that the the... There's always a choice um, in technology, how much, how little. Um, and, and the technologies that we choose to adopt um, work on both ends. There's that old phrase, um, the, tool, the tool works on both ends. It, it both enables us to shape our world, but it also shapes us in the process. And what he was really drawing out was that if you look at the, the series as a whole, you can see that by and large, um, the the side or the individual using the simpler tool tends to win. And I, I think that's a powerful thought, um, particularly uh, as, I, I mean, I, I think it's a fair statement, but challengeable that Americans tend to uh, uh, look forward to look to the next gadget, the next widget, and that doesn't always bring what we want or intend, and especially victory on the battlefield. We've had an immense amount of difficulty um, over the course of the last decade and a half uh, with every conceivable technological advantage you could imagine um, against opponents all across the world, um, but largely in Iraq and Afghanistan. Another chapter to pay attention to is from Teresa Hitchens, Why the Empire Failed, and she seems to get at a common refrain. We've heard it before that the military always is fighting the last war. Uh, we are now seeing a different type of war. It's very asymmetric. That's the term that seems to be thrown around a lot, whether it's what we've seen in the Middle East with various terrorist groups or even what the Russians have done in the Crimea or the Ukraine. Uh, it seems that we're obviously trying to keep up with that. Is there a danger that by changing to those tactics and strategies now that eventually that will become obsolete and we'll be finding ourselves in another situation where, once again, we're fighting the last war? You know, that happens, that happens all throughout history. And unfortunately, the two main enemies are money and psychology. 
specifically, once you set up a, a way to fight the old war, you then have business contracts, very lucrative contracts, and people want to keep those contracts going, even though the weapons are obsolete. Uh, so that's one problem. And another problem is psychology. People come of age fighting a certain way, and they feel comfortable doing that. And you saw that right after Vietnam, where we should have come out of that war with the best counterinsurgency school the world's ever seen. And we went right back to conventional tank warfare in West Germany because that's how we felt comfortable. And you see it again today. We have what's called a system of systems, a way of fighting. Uh, and we saw that in Desert Storm. Nobody can match us. And nobody's trying. Uh, even the Chinese, the Russians, terrorist groups, they know they can't match us in that conventional way of fighting. So they're going around it, like the Maginot Line. They're doing cyber warfare, information warfare, proxy warfare, uh, terror, economics, and they're winning. And they're outmaneuvering us on a daily basis. Uh, and we're still trying to fight in our comfort zone. And that is, that is the danger. That's, that's when people get killed. Max, you called uh, money of the old classic uh, works on military strategy uh, snooze fest. That is certainly not the case with Strategy Strikes Back, how Star Wars explains modern military conflict. Just a fascinating read. And before I let both of you gentlemen go, got to ask you, uh, I'll start with Matt. What's your favorite Star Wars movie and where do you stand on The Last Jedi and Luke Skywalker? Okay, so... Favorite movie is probably Empire Strikes Back. I think that's, I mean, it, I would imagine you get, that's your overwhelming response, but it's, it may also have something to do with the fact that I was, that was sort of when I was first able to understand the film. Um, I was young, it sort of created an impression on me. I loved The Last Jedi. Um, I thought that it was a, a, a really great and fitting end to Mark Hamill's journey with the show that he had done so much to create and I I thought Ryan Johnson the writer-director did a fantastic job so I um, I'm, I'm gonna sound a little bit like I'm I'm totally setting aside all of my criticisms and remarks from the book and just being a fan right now and, and that's how my answers go your turn Max favorite Star Wars film and Last <coughs> Jedi and Luke I would go, again, with Empire Strikes Back, not just because, I, I, I agree 100% with Matt, it was exactly time frame when I, I was at a certain age where I was old enough to really appreciate it. I was a little too young to appreciate New Hope when it first came out. Uh, so it's just a great movie. I would, I would match it up against any conventional movie anywhere. Uh, but instead of talking about Last Jedi, I want to give a special shout-out to the prequels. And, and I think that they have so much to teach us. And I think the problem is we have been blinded by Jar Jar Binks. Mm, mm -hmm. I, think, I think the prequels have, can teach us volumes about democracy, about strategy, about what happens when a republic becomes arrogant and short-sighted. And, and I think we really need to revisit those. And I think as citizens, as voters in a republic, we have a moral and patriotic obligation to look beyond Jar Jar Binks. 
That is a rare take, and I'm going to have to give Phantom Menace another look because when it came out, I have to admit, I was very underwhelmed, and I don't think I've gone back to it since then. So I'm going to pay heed to your advice and give it another look. You're doing your patriotic duty. There we go. Max Brooks and Major Matt Cavanaugh, co-editors and contributors to Strategy Strikes Back, how Star Wars explains modern military conflict. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. I'm Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'll see you next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.